Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Helix Sleep. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. This episode of Mission Log is also brought to you by the Eagle Moss Hero Collector Shop, home of the official Star Trek collectibles and favorites from Battlestar Galactica, The Orville, Stargate, even Space 1999 and more. Enjoy special savings when you go to shop.eaglemoss.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 426, Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we size up an episode of Star Trek. Then we look at all the details, bring in all the key players, and finally execute a foolproof plan to pick apart the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, bada bing, bada bang. The one where everyone's favorite hologram is in trouble and he needs the help of his real-world friends. I'll be right back with trivia, and Norman will tell you how to get in touch with us. But first, a word from our good friends over at Eagle Moss. Capiche? Fans of Eagle Moss Hero Collector, all you collectors of everything from the 5- to 6-inch official Star Trek starships, the larger Star Trek Discovery Collection, or even the larger XL editions, as well as fans of Battlestar Galactica, the Orville, Stargate, and even Space 1999 and more, well, have we got great news for you and everybody on your gift list. Yeah, seriously, the Eagle Moss Hero Collector Shop. You know how much Norman and I love them already, and they have been longtime supporters of our show. Well, they are ready to do business. And listeners of Mission Log can enjoy special savings right now. Here's what you do. You go to shop.eaglemoss.com, take a look at the variety of brands, ships, and collectibles waiting for you. And many of those things are shop exclusives. Plus, there's special site-wide offers that can save you 10%, 15%, up to 20% on your purchase with a bonus $5 gift card of order $75 or more. Certain exclusions do apply, but look, Norman, the way I look at this, it's like uh, pick out something for myself, something for a friend, something for another friend, and the more stuff I buy, the more stuff I save because uh, I've got my eye on those eagles, okay? Okay. Just one question, John. How many friends named Norm do you have? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that friend wants all the Eagles and all the truck collection, too. And remember, these are officially authorized models and only available from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Each ship 
like the Eagle is die-cast, hand-painted, <laughs> and comes with a display stand, plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlighting the ship's history and design and how many times Alan Carter crashed one. <laughs> That's perfect. So look, you know how much we love these ships, and you know what you need to do. If you haven't been there in a while, go over there. Head over to shop.eaglemoss.com today. Uh, pick up starships, pick up eagles, pick up all kinds of stuff. So many offers, so many exclusives. Uh, you're going to love it. All right, Norman, how about those contact coordinates? Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com and remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion, who is going to give you some trivia that you can't refuse. <laughs> All right, trivia for today's episode. Bada bing, bada bang. It was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. And honestly, that should not come as a surprise to anyone not just because Ira and Hans are so frequently credited together on DS9, but this is an episode that speaks to some of Ira's personal interests. He loves old Vegas, and he wanted to do a classic heist plot, pretty much what you get in Ocean's Eleven. And I mean the original, from 1960, with Frank, Sammy, Dino, Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, Angie Dickinson, EO11. Directed by Mike Vehar, and we last talked about Mike when he directed DS9's Valiant, and he has just two more to go with the series. We'll catch him again on Voyager, where he directs the most of any in his Trek career. Early on, there's a mention of the 1960 film The Alamo, starring and directed by John Wayne. Now, he went into tremendous personal debt by partially funding the movie so he could direct it. Um, incidentally, it was banned in Mexico. <clears throat> now, there is more that could be said about Wayne much more personally, but I actually want to focus on something that is far more relevant to one of the themes in this episode. At the time of production... Sammy Davis wanted to play one of the slave roles in the Alamo, but he was denied because Wayne was aware that many of the other investors would not accept a black man who was dating a white woman in real life. And the movie did clock in at two hours and 42 minutes, so Vic Fontaine isn't wrong. Production note on this episode, it was aired out of order. Uh, it was actually filmed after next week's episode, but the studio liked it so much they wanted to bump it up for February sweeps in 1999. Also of note, the show did get an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Hairstyling. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, Penny Johnson is back as Cassidy Yates. A young Bobby Riley is here as the accountant. Yes, that's Robert O'Reilly, and he and Ira had the idea to obscure that it was him appearing as someone other than Gowron. Robert Miano as Frankie Eyes, and you've seen Robert before, sometimes playing a gangster, sometimes not. He got his start as a singer and Broadway performer before getting his first on-screen role in 1974's Death Wish. 
Since then, the credits have piled up anywhere from T.J. Hooker to Donnie Brasco to Fast and Furious. We have Mike Starr as Tony Cheech. Here we have another actor with just a huge resume. He got his start on TV, but almost immediately jumped to features with the 1980 Al Pacino film Cruising. He also played a lot of tough guy and mobster roles like in Goodfellas. Hey, I, I think I'm starting to see a pattern in the casting here. Ah, but you will also find Mike in comedies like Dumb and Dumber and Uncle Buck, and I remember him from one of my favorites as producer Mr. Weiss in Tim Burton's Ed Wood. And finally, Mark Lawrence as Mr. Zemo. What can possibly be said to summarize Mark's career? You probably recognized him instantly in the episode, even if you didn't remember the name right away. He appeared in over 200 movies, and he got his start in the 1932 film If I Had a Million, playing, of course, a henchman. A lot of tough guy gangster roles followed, but so did a lot of others. He was in two James Bond films, Diamonds Are Forever and The Man with the Golden Gun. He was in the 1992 Disney film Newsies, and we've even seen him on Trek before in the next-gen episode, The Vengeance Factor. Loads of other TV roles, as well as Broadway, round out his resume. Born in 1910, we said goodbye to Mark when he passed away in 2005. You know the Rat Pack. You know the Brat Pack. Get ready for the We Survive Galducat Pack. Prologue. Hanging out in Vic's nightclub at Suite, Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien are trying to convince their holographic friend to join them in another hollow simulation, the Alamo. Vic declines. It isn't for him. But he'll see them off with a song about the Alamo. And as he does, something changes. Everything changes. The whole room around them, the people, the sound of the band, which goes from mellow jazz to something brassy and grating, the stage suddenly fills with showgirls who don't look thrilled with the job. In walk a couple of tough guys, Frankie Eyes and his goon Cheech. Frankie knows Vic from back in the day in South Philly. This isn't a social call, though. Frankie announces that he owns the hotel and casino, and Vic is out of a job. When O'Brien tries to stop the program and delete these new characters, nothing happens. There's some kind of problem with the holosuite. And that problem is worse for Vic, who is grabbed by Cheech. Act 1. Cheech puts Vic down, for now, while Frankie says he's going to take a look at his new property. Vic explains to Bashir and O'Brien that they can't do anything to Frankie since he's a made man. Bashir's concern is bigger than just Frankie, though. What can they do to fix the whole program? The chief says they could shut it all down manually— but that would erase Vic's entire memory, and neither they, nor certainly Vic, would want that. Bashir will have to talk to Felix to see if he can offer a clue. Later in Ops, Bashir tells the others that Felix has planted a jack-in-the-box in the program, basically a surprise to shake things up, and they'll need to play along to reset things back to normal. A gang war is too risky. If Vic is killed in the program, he would be erased. And everybody here, Bashir, O'Brien, Kira, definitely Nog, are invested in protecting their favorite hologram. 
A couple of people who are not interested are Worf, who just sees Vic as a hologram, and Sisko, who just wants his crew to get back to work. Later at night, though, here's Cassidy Yates talking to Benjamin about what's happening in the holosuite, and he gets visibly uncomfortable. She makes it sound like a pretty important thing that's going on and wants to know why Ben's never even been in there. He won't answer. Back in the holosuite, O'Brien and Bashir drop by Vic's apartment, only to find that Vic has been seriously roughed up. Act 2. The mobsters beat up Vic, obviously, but Bashir says he'll be all right. It was an intimidation tactic to get Vic to leave. Soon. And there's no good reason behind it, except that Vic and Frankie have been rivals ever since they were kids. But right now... They need Vic to lay low while they find a weakness to exploit, some way to get rid of Frankie and get the Holosuite program back to normal. Odo and Kira are in the club right now checking it out. Odo is able to ingratiate himself with Cheech and his goons, partly by acting along with their bravado and partly by showing off a changeling trick at the bar. Kira is able to ingratiate herself with Frankie Eyes because, well, Frankie has eyes for her when she's losing at Blackjack. The recon yielded some useful information. Frankie is working for a much bigger hood, Carl Zemo. That's the guy who bought the hotel, to whom Frankie is beholden, to the tune of about two hundred grand a month. That's the skim, the -the off-the-books part Mr. Zemo expects, which raises a thought in Chief O'Brien. What if Mr. Zemo didn't get his skim? Stealing from the mob is a pretty brazen thing to do, but if they pull it off, Frankie and all of his goons are gone, and the club goes back to normal, as long as nobody gets caught, which would end up killing Vic. But other than that... Everyone in Vic's room, Kira, Odo, Nog, Cassidy, Esri, Julian, and Miles, they all agree. If Vic wants his club back, they're going to have to hatch a plan to steal a million bucks from the hotel right under the noses of the mob. Act 3. Now the background before the heist. Kira has earned Frankie's ardor, which gives her a peek into the count room. Odo gets Esri a job as a cocktail waitress through his connection with Cheech. Then there's Vic, who sweet-talks Frankie just enough with the promise of some high rollers to come through the casino. At least Vic can stick around for that. Cassidy is the distraction for the security guards. And when she relates this to Captain Sisko later in his quarters, well, he doesn't take it so well. He's never been to Vic's, and he's not thrilled with his senior staff doing so much in this virtual environment. More than that, this artifice of 1962, it's masking a very dark truth, that black people like him and Cassidy were definitely not a part of the picture in the real Vegas of that era. He can't stomach it. Cassidy, though, says this is a simulation. It isn't real, and it's supposed to perhaps be a look at what could or should have been, He doesn't seem impressed. A little while later, the gang are sitting in Vic's room, still plotting. They need to fill the high roller part of their plan, but they're short one person. Worf and Quark are bad candidates for good reasons. And then a knock on the door. Having reconsidered, it's Captain Sisko. Act 4. It's time to talk through the plan, and you know what this means. When you show a lot of things happening at once, remind everyone of what's going on. We're going to need a montage. Everybody has their place. Kira distracting Frankie and Cassidy distracting the guards by claiming Miles stole her chips. 
Esri will swing by Julian's table with a couple of martinis, one of which he'll drop a little ipecac in that goes to the count room. One of the counters leaves for an eight-minute phone call every night at 11.45, and the second one will get very ill from his spiked drink, a drink served on a tray that stays in the room. Cisco and Vic will create a stir at the tables, dropping big money so nobody's eyes are anywhere else. When the second counter leaves the count room, Nog goes in to use his finely attuned hearing to crack the safe. Then the tray Esri left behind will reveal itself to be Odo, who will scoop up all the cash and walk calmly outside with Nog in a security uniform in tow. So simple, how could it not work? Zemo is supposed to visit the casino in two days, so they'll all practice their parts and reconvene to pull it off tomorrow night. The time arrives. Everyone is prepped and ready and playing their parts. It starts well enough. Frankie is distracted. Cisco is dropping big bets at the craps table. The first counter leaves the office. But when Esri approaches Julian with her martinis, someone bumps into her and knocks the drinks off the tray. Thinking fast, Julian grabs another from a nearby waitress and spikes the drink. When Esri delivers it, the second counter they expected isn't there. It's a new guy. And he almost doesn't guzzle the martini until he realizes he can do it to spite his waitress. As soon as he's ill, he leaves the room. Outside, Cassidy and Miles cause their diversion to the security guard, and Nog slips into the count room. Bad news, though. The lock isn't like the lock he's been practicing on. It's going to take a lot longer. Kira's keeping Frankie busy in the showroom. Nog is trying his best with the lock, but it isn't budging. Everyone is starting to look at the time. Eight minutes ticks down to barely two. They're all starting to get a little worried. Then Frankie and Kira get an unexpected surprise. Mr. Zemo is here, tonight, and he wants to see the count room right away. First, Kira tries to stall him by appealing to his ego, but Zemo is only interested in seeing the money. And their eight minutes is up. Act 5. The safe isn't open. Zemo is in the building, and the first counter is done with his phone call. Bashir goes into action, telling the counter that Frankie wants to see him out back to maybe buy another minute. Vic, seeing Zemo make his way across the casino, puts himself right in their way and pretends like he knows Zemo's date. Nina, he says, how about that week in Miami? Zemo is not pleased. Frankie calls for Cheech to bury Vic, but Sisko, seeing what's happening, creates a distraction of his own by throwing thousands of dollars into the air and announcing that everyone is a winner. The casino floor is swarming with people, including Cheech himself, scrambling to pick up a few bucks. In this time, Nog has finally opened the safe so Odo can start clearing it. At the other end of the casino, though, the security guard playing referee to Cassidy and Miles' little bit of drama calls over one of his buddies to take Miles away and strip-search him. The first needs to get back to his post watching the count room. He turns around at the split second Odo and Nog exit the room, and Cassidy creates her final distraction, sobbing, thankfully, in the security officer's arms. Zemo finally gets a peek at the empty safe, much to Frankie's horror. The next thing you know, Frankie and Cheech are being walked out, each one followed by one of Zemo's armed henchmen, surely to be buried in the desert. They pass through the showroom, solemnly, 
catching a glimpse of the people who pulled off the heist. In an instant, the room transforms back to Vic's nightclub, the way it should be. Vic is grateful to his friends and raises a glass of bubbly on him to all of them. He even says he'll join Bashir and O'Brien in the Alamo sometimes to show his gratitude. Time to close things off with a show. It's Vic Fontaine and Captain Benjamin Sisko. The song, The Best is Yet to Come. The End. So, John, wonderful recap. And it begs the question, was there uh, an alternate title to this called Frankie Goes to Hollow Suite? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. How have I never thought of that before? Thank you. Thank you. That is why you occupy that other seat across from me virtually. Thank you. For it was all the Zemo that I just drank before the episode. That's, <laughs> oh, that's, that's, what it is. oh, that's good. That's good. We're, it's going to be one of those shows. All <laughs> right. right. Hey, look, uh, so much comment about on this episode, uh, but I have to say up top, uh, look, Vic, Vic is my spirit animal. And just one more mm. place that I really connect with Vic when he's declining the invitation to go to the Alamo, there are plenty of invitations or opportunities that I've declined purely because of the clothes that go with it that don't suit me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it, you have to consider these things. So, yeah, I hear, it. I hear it. I mean, when you go into a full Hollow Suite program, you have to be comfortable with what you're wearing. Sure, exactly. Yeah. Um, I do and appreciate that. I can totally see you with Vix, though, man. I mean, that's like, that is your jam. I'd never leave. Jelly Roll. I would never yeah. leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. If if those of you uh, are playing kind of like the Deep Space Nine game at home, as I have been, I have to be honest here. For a serialized show, the Alamo Hollow Suite program is mentioned more consistently in episodes than the war itself. <laughs> the Dominion War, you're right. Honestly, especially in this season. Yes. I just, I'm just, you know, yeah. I'm just making a count. Yeah. That's a little, little weird. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that transformation because the band starts playing Night Train. When the club mm-hmm. transitions in the teaser. And this is just a classic, like, well, it, it's a stripper song from, from the 50s, you know. Bump, bump, bump. Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny to me on many levels how tame all of this is. First of all, because there's the production reality that you're not going to show anything too sleazy on syndicated broadcast TV in the 90s. And I have to say that, yes, the the club, it's darker, it's grittier. Uh, the the showgirls, are like, look, they're, they're well choreographed, uh, but there's nothing really sleazy about any of it. And then again, but there's this meta thing, too, where Star Trek is pretty straight-laced, at least up until now. You know, what with, like, loot concerts on the Enterprise. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the extent of their nightlife, right? But of course, Bashir and O'Brien are scandalized by the club's transformation, as they should oh, right. be. Right. Yeah. Clutch yeah. the pearls, yes. both of them. Yes, yes. Right? <laughs> the interesting thing about Night Train, when I was hearing that as the transitional music between, mm-hmm. you know, Vic's Lounge to, to Frankie's Hollow Suite. Yep. So isn't that the same music that we hear playing during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance in Back to the Future. Yes, yes. And isn't the Enchantment Under the Sea dance supposed to be this very innocent teen dance where, you know, uh, burgeoning romances may happen? I like, this know. is like, like, 
you want to see like stripper poles drop from the ceiling. It, that like, that when is this music happens. The kind of song, yeah, classic burlesque song, and it's so that that's the first place I ever became aware of that song. But yeah, that that is the implication of that song. <laughs> Thank you, Marvin Berry and the Starlighters, yes. for performing that. So, Mikey Starr is Cheech. So. If you want to like give your show like instant mob style credibility, hire this guy. This mm. is the guy that you want because he is literally like the embodiment of mafia style enforcer, which he is in yeah. this episode. Oh, totally, totally. And it's interesting. I, I read on his IMDb, he says that you know because of his size and his look, he tends to get cast like that. But that, that's you know, as with so many actors playing a tough guy, like that's not really what they're like in real life. And he oh, says true, he true, really true. loves true. doing comedy and and other things. But you know. And I have to say, you know, as far as the consistency of Deep Space Nine, I love Nog's affinity for Vic, which is very obvious, of course. But even if everyone else in this episode thought they should just reboot the program, our sympathies immediately would go with Nog for very good reason. And I, I just love him saying, you know, he's more than just a hologram. He's my friend. That speaks so much truth after what we saw in It's Only a Paper Moon. And, and to think, a few weeks ago, everyone was trying to talk Nog out of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but they get it. They get the value. I like that scene a lot because it kind of does show, you know, even during on-duty times, you know, the crew relaxing and, and having conversations and, you know, just coming together as people. But I also love the reality when Cisco comes out of his office, looks at everyone, hearing the conversation and says, uh, when are you going back to work? Because the Dominion War doesn't win itself. Right? Yeah, right. Right. I mean, someone's got to come down and just, here's a cold dose of reality. We're at war, people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're in this very interesting situation, like any crew on Star Trek. They all work together. They also all live together, and they all socialize together. So I can Mm -hmm. see how those lines would get very blurry, you know? Oh, sure. I I was thinking, you know, it's a lucky thing that in the writing of DS9 – that Cisco had not been to Vix before in previous episodes. And I wondered if that was just kind of a happy accident, or since Ira wanted to do an episode like this, was that just sort of a thing to say, well, no, let's not have Cisco there until we can really have a, a solid reason for him to be there. But it worked yeah. out well. I like in the uh, the dinner scene with Cassidy and, and Captain Cisco where she compliments him on his food. And he said that my father taught me everything I know. Mm-hmm. Well, your father was very like gregarious and very sociable, like yeah. walking around his restaurant, complimenting his customers, making his customers feel at ease when they're at dinner. What part of that didn't you learn from your father? Because that scene turns from wonderful to uh, cringy yeah. in like a second. Yeah, it does. It does. And we're going to have a lot to say about that scene and and the follow-up. Odo, I, I love Odo and Kira going to the club and Odo with his breath taken away by the burlesque dancers. Kira's reaction to that is gold. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it was pretty funny. I mean, for a guy who isn't even a humanoid, that he's very hip to this. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that, that, that was funny. And there's that great, like, really nice tonal change in production and lighting and atmosphere when it goes from, like, snazzy Vicks yeah. to skanky nightclub. Yes. When when Frankie's in charge. It's almost as if Vic is in his own mirror universe, like a, a really good version of his mirror oh universe, my. not the oh, wacky one. That is a really clever way of putting that. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It's a way to do mirror without doing mirror. Yeah. I love that. Like, too many guys named Pauly. 
<laughs> it was a funny moment. Uh, we talk about whacking the wrong Polly, you know. And uh, but it was also fun watching Odo ingratiate himself into that crowd. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. it's a nice moment. I don't know. Maybe Polly. Um, well, we have a lot of Pauls in our Discord in our Mission Log audience, so maybe Cheech has a problem with them too. Oh, that could be. Could be. We hope not. Yeah, I will say in a show that has a lot of great dialogue, fantastic dialogue in that scene between Frankie and Kira when they first meet at the blackjack table, and she's losing. Oh. I, so good. I mean, it just felt like a 1940s film. It was great. Yeah. Nana flexes so hard when she like gets into those scenes. She's so good. She yeah. is like just, she is smoldering yep. good. Yep. Burning a hole right in through the film stock. Yep. Oh, by the way, Bajor, <laughs> that's in Jersey, right? <laughs> I died when I heard that. Cause I'm from Jersey. Uh, yeah. Well, up to a point. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the best lines I've ever heard in deep space nine. Yeah, sorry. I was laughing my A dollar sign, dollar sign off. Yes, yes. Uh, and I got to say, for a show that is so full of great style, and I love this period, the Starfleet casual look in Vic's apartment is not great. They, they should just all have 1960s resort casual like Vic does. Yeah. yeah. It's really strange. What exactly was Bashir wearing? I wasn't getting it. It was like a leftover was... from Angel One, you know? <laughs> It yeah, it made me good. sad for him. It yeah. made me sad for uh, you know for Sid because he, he looked great in that suit with the hat. He, he looked oh, fantastic yeah. in that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, nice job in actually choosing those kind of like those pork pies. Oh yeah, because the, the brims in '62 started to recede a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, after the late 1950s. Yep. Uh, but when when Cisco appears in Vic's apartment, right when they said we need guys so heavy, a high roller so big, knock knock. Hi, it's me. Uh-huh. I've just resolved myself to join you, but it felt like. Dr. Hippocrates Noah <laughs> showing up in our man Bashir because Captain Cisco has to play the heavy, right? He yeah. has to play the heavy. Oh, that's good. That, that's funny. Yeah. Hey, did you notice something uh, in the, the heist details that uh, the suitcase is something that Odo morphs, right? It's mm-hmm. not a physical object. So it's part of him, but it is separate from him. And then the plan is he just leaves that in the trash. <laughs> you know, you know I was watching that scene. I'm like, okay, how are they going to do this? When his arm goes off camera, yeah. it still looks like he's holding onto the suitcase because he doesn't. He only uses one right. hand to to you know shovel the money in. Right, right. So maybe he could so, just go out to the garbage can and sort of open it up mm-hmm. morphically, and then it'll, all the cash drops out. And all right, maybe that's the plan. All right, I like that. That's what I thought. Um, Hey, some great photography in here. One of the all-time great shots of the crew, of course, dressed great, walking down the corridor with the jazz version of the DS9 theme. And I love Quark and Morn's reactions. So perfect. Um, Another great shot uh, is that upside-down crane shot landing on Vic at the craps table. Oh, my God. A fabulous, incredible, beautiful, beautiful shot. Nice job, Mike Vehar. Yep. And uh, I'm going to hand it to, uh, I, I guess, Ira, who wrote it, or maybe Hans, who did, and uh, Sid's delivery here. Vodka martini, stirred, not shaken. Yes, sir, you are correct. Especially for the scene where they had to conceal the, you know, the mm-hmm. poison-ish stuff yep. in there. Yep. So I know that you know, for heist's sake, you know, you need to have that that one monkey in the wrench that's going to screw things up, and that's Nog not being able to open the safe. Yeah, yeah. But 
in the reality of who Odo is, and he is in the room mm-hmm. waiting for Nog to open up the safe, why didn't Odo just turn into liquid and go into the tumbler system this is a 1962 tumbler system safe it's not very sophisticated yeah. he could have just done it from the inside out yeah right good point i'm just saying yeah i'm just saying. yeah um again with nana and the actress playing frankie eyes yeah. um i'll pretty much watch those you know those scenes on repeat brilliant brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh and and speaking of just being jaw-dropping in pretty much every scene that she's in in this episode yeah. the very end when when Cisco goes on stage, Avery goes on stage. Yeah, she had the most extreme reaction to that, like yeah. a jaw dropping reaction. Yeah, her or acting. I yeah, that that's such a good question because I I have to assume, you know, typically the way you shoot a scene like that is you pre record the music, uh, the actors lip sync it so you can you know get it committed to film, and then you're shooting the reactions separately. So mm-hmm. I have to assume that they heard it before. I have to assume that that's acting, but it's really good. And actually, and it's lovely to see Kira having gone through such a long arc from the beginning, from where we first met her at the beginning of this series, to somebody who is in love, who has this you know fun life as well. Like it, it's great, and yeah. and that was a, a nice moment to see. All right, I, I will call out this thing. There is an O'Brien must suffer moment here about how he got strip searched. Uh, okay, it, it's kind of done as a gag here, but for a game, he did this. I mean, even he didn't pull the plug at that point. And uh, that's, you know, does he ever even hold that against Vic? <laughs> because. Seriously, he just went through that with him. That that is one spot in this episode that I feel like is pretty cringy in retrospect. No, that's I agree. They yeah. may have played that joke for a little too long. Yeah, you know, bringing it back up at the end. But I have one question for you, John, mm. and I have one question for the listeners out there. So we saw the the wonderful montage of like the entire crew walking in costume down the corridor. We see them stroll past Quark, who even gets a line and kind of like. Probably wants to join them. Mm-hmm. So, is Worf in Ops all alone now? <laughs> because that's, you know, he just basically said, yeah, Vic doesn't, you know, matter to me one way or the other. So, I don't know, Worf, you've come this far. Why not be a team player, right? You know, don't try so hard to be an island. I can't help but thinking that setting Derek loose on the mob would have made for a much shorter episode. We'll get right back to Bada Bing Bada Bang in a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsor. Hey, uh, Norman, mm-hmm. would you like to know what I was doing late last night? I mean, I really do. Let your imagine. Yeah, okay. You let your imagination run wild, but but I was watching Star Trek. Uh, in bed. Nice. I know. I know. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, frankly, uh, I do a lot of my work in bed because, well, it's uh, it's comfortable. And look, I'll just pose it to all of you. Whatever it is that you do in bed, work, sleep, uh, other things, you can do so in the height of comfort with a new mattress from Helix Sleep. 
Now, Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. You can find that at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Everybody is unique, and Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They've got soft, medium, firm. They have mattresses that are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. There's even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. Now, uh, Norman, you took the uh, Helix quiz, and you got your own mattress. Tell me about it. Well, I know, John, I just want to say, like, I love your dedication to watching a Mafia-style episode, because when you literally go to the mattress, you go to the mattress. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well done. (laughs) You're right. I did take the Helix quiz, because I was looking for a new mattress not too long ago, and uh, it matched a... It matched me up with uh, the body style that I am and the sleep type that I like. I like sleeping a little bit firm, and I like sleeping a little bit on the cooler side because I'm a hot sleeper. Yes, I am, folks. I just said that out loud. I'm a hot <laughs> sleeper. But the quiz is very uh, its very accurate, and when I received my mattress, it came wonderfully packaged. It was very well easy to assemble because there are no parts required. All you really need is a knife, a small knife to cut open the box, and then pop open that vacuum-sealed wonderfulness which i love watch the mattress expand and then in a few hours time you have the perfect mattress for you so if you're looking for a mattress you take that quiz you order the mattress you're matched to the mattress comes right to your door ship for free you don't ever have to go to the mattress store again that's a huge plus helix is awesome my biggest biggest nightmare yep. yeah that's my biggest nightmare going into a mattress store yeah Helix is awesome. You don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So again, just go to their site, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And to be honest with you, John, gives my cats the best sleep of their life, too. Ah, really? So a little little side benefit Mm -hmm. there. That's good. Yeah. They also have a 10-year warranty, so you get to try it for 100 nights risk-free, and they'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will and your cats will. All right, and Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Again, that's helixsleep.com slash mission log, and thank you to Helix for sponsoring this week's show. All right, Norman, there are so many uh, big issues, fun issues we could talk about in this episode. I want to start out with something just as a fun observation, though. Normally, we would park this in the previous segment. But um, this is the kind of thing, the, the kind of experience that illustrates perfectly the different concepts that people have for what is a fun game or a fun diversion or a slice of entertainment for themselves. Uh, if you gave me a hollow suite program where I could watch a jazz show and drink cocktails and hang out in Vegas, I would love that. I would not need for that to change at all. If you introduce mobsters and a potentially violent problem I had to solve, I would not enjoy that game at all. <laughs> I would, that would not be my idea of rest and relaxation. Uh, I know that, you know, for some people like, ooh, it's a challenge I get to solve. I'm like, nope, nope. Somebody else can do that. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, And let's get this uh, out of the way up front, too. There are some people who don't want to talk about Vic, uh, but Vic is central to this story, and he has been to some others that we have covered on Mission Log, so we got to talk about Vic. I mean, that's that's sort of the nature of the beast here. Now, ironically, I I feel like some of those negative sentiments uh, are that, uh, well, DS9 spent too much time on the holographic character as opposed to what the real characters mm-hmm. 
in a fictional science fiction show that takes place in the future that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, the characters are the characters. They they all just sort of they, – they all sort of blend into one. And then we get to have these fun and interesting conversations about the nature of – uh, existence and sentience and our relationship to technology. Right. Um, and what's interesting to me in this episode is how we're made aware that Vic is non-living. You know, he's just a computer simulation and he can be rebooted, but nobody wants to do that other than Worf. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, be a team player, Worf. Come be on. better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's all about the affinity that they have for the character. So at a certain point, it's not even about Vic. It's about the emotional investment that everybody else has put into Vic, you know, their relationship to uh, a, a series of ones and zeros, you know. And that says something about the emotional attachment that we can have for non-living things. I mean, whether it's electronics or art or games or whatever, you know, you sitting in a movie theater watching a movie that makes you laugh or makes you cry, well, it's just so many photons bouncing off a screen. Mm -hmm. The things that happen there are artificial and they happened long before you saw it and they were written by a writer who had an idea and yet your emotional response can still be real. Yes, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's Worf. <laughs> he is a hologram, and therefore he does not exist. But really, Worf? Because that's where definitions are going to get really difficult when you just say he doesn't exist. Well, he does. Mm-hmm. He is not naturally occurring. He is not organic. But he does exist. And he has an actual real emotional impact on the people who interact with him. So that that might be a little too much of a gray area for Worf to consider. You know, I would think so too, but you know, he has he has grown to a point in in his experience uh, in Deep Space 9 and uh being the allegory to us growing throughout the course of our fandom wherever our fandom starts or stops with Star Trek of what is real, you know, what is emotionally connective to us. We can go all the way back to this uh particular discussion when it comes to what Picard was saying in Measure of a Man about sentient mm-hmm. life. You know, what is sentience? Mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, you know, if Vic has, he has consciousness, he has self-awareness, you know, he has the ability to connect with people and he understands his own intelligence. He is obviously able to at least control a, a certain aspect of his life. He can he can jump between programs. He can turn on and off his program. He can infiltrate the systems in the in the station. I mean, Mm-hmm. Aside from not being physically real, quote unquote, then what is he? I don't know. Do you? Do you? You know, I mean, that's that's what I feel like when I hear yeah. these types of, you know, counterpoints to this discussion. And here's something that I would love to do, John. I would love mm-hmm. to have like a three day bender of a discussion with you over cocktails and cigars in Vic's lounge, you know, just kind of pandering around. What or who yeah. is real? Because in the Star Trek universe, we or in science fiction in general, you know, we 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 try and uh, discuss and, and pick apart this very large concept. But I'd like to I'd like to steer this in a different direction. It's a little bit sure. more philosophical, maybe even a little bit more spiritual. So some mm. out there may believe that since Vic, well, at least Worf does, that Vic is indeed a program, 
like a construct of light and shade held together mm. by force fields and technology. But he still has the ability to give somebody like Nog or anyone he's befriended a second chance or a purpose to find mm. meanings in their lives, to find hope or to find courage or to simply just enjoy and realize who they are and what they mean to each other. Like Kira and Oda when we first met Vic. Who knows what their relationship would have become if it weren't for him and his understanding and his yeah. influence. So how can that be any different as a belief than believing in something incorporeal or spiritual? Because yeah. people pray to an invisible God every day, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For love, for enlightenment, for riches, for anything that they need for their lives to be better or less difficult. So at least in Vic's case... He can stand in front of you and react and interact. So here's the big question. How is he yeah. less believable than, say, keeping in topic of, of deities or gods in Deep Space Nine than the prophets themselves? Yeah, you know, that's. Uh, I'm glad you took it that direction because that, that is so interesting that the uh, – okay, the prophets are full of unknowns, we don't know who they are. We don't what you know what they are. We don't know their origin story. We just know that they exist in the wormhole and uh, they speak in riddles. <laughs> you know, um, Vic. We know that Felix created, but Felix is creative enough, uh, or got lucky enough that he has a holographic simulation that seems to learn and synthesize information on his own. So maybe the only difference is we can point to a specific point of origin that is somebody you know, running a computer program as opposed to something that is unknown. I would flip it back around and say, well, you know, you and I are having a conversation. I can make certain assumptions about your origin. You're a human being. You came from other human beings. You've got a brain in your head, which allows you to put together thoughts and ideas hmm. so we can have this kind of conversation hmm. you know, when we're at Relatively our best. speaking, <laughs> you know? of course. Relatively, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, I, I, my, my experience of consciousness is only my own. I can't experience or verify your consciousness. So I just have to go with an assumption on that end. And it's kind of when you get down to it, what we would have to do with a guy like Vic as well. You know, it, it's less important what he actually is. It's more important what our treatment and reaction to him is, much the way it was in Measure of a Man. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, data's value. Yeah, we can point to somebody who made him. We can point to the parts that made him. At the end of the day, we're just parts of a different kind of machine. Uh, what is important is how we all agree and decide that we're going to treat those uh, with some level of dignity and respect. So let's talk about the big thing in this episode. This episode is fun. We'll talk about how fun but it is. How sure. to pronounce Zemo correctly? <laughs> how did that, that's that's going to take some yeah. time, right? But we need to talk about that monologue, mm. Cisco's reaction to what's going on. Yep. There's a lot to unpack here. And, um, and I find myself still, you know, not really landing on solid answers, but it, it introduces all these very interesting questions, especially because he decides ultimately to go along with it. 
you know. And part of me says that's absolutely the right decision. It's the right decision for the story and for the people that he works with. But is it the right decision for him? And uh, let me say this. So this episode would have felt incomplete if there wasn't some way to address the multiracial characters in a place where they would have faced discrimination for real. Even though we have to swallow the bit that the aliens here go unnoticed. You know, here here's Nog walking around looking like Nog and and nobody notices. So that's like a blind spot in the Hollow Suite. But program. I think it's also a very relevant point, John, because it's a fantasy, not a reality. Yeah. Yep. 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 And I feel like we're almost missing a scene here of Cisco reconciling with himself the decision to go into a place that is very uncomfortable for him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's another angle to this conversation, which is asking ourselves how much of our history and our culture do we throw away or accept or reframe because there are good aspects that might come along with the bad. You know, is it okay to enjoy something even if that thing came along with unsavory or outdated attitudes and perspectives? Are some of those too far gone to be saved? Uh, Are we asking too much? It's one thing for me to say that I would like to step back to a jazz club in 1962, but there are plenty of people not like me who would never be able to enjoy that slice of fantasy. Like myself. We were talking about this off the air. Yeah. Like myself. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, we have this series of questions about what is appropriate here. You know, there there are as many answers to how much of a problematic thing in the past we can enjoy as there are individuals to try to answer that question. And when you look back, there are good people with bad ideas. There are bad people with good ideas. There are moments in history that have value and lessons to learn that can also house ideas that are repugnant. So how do we deal with that? Is it is it just a whitewash to enjoy those good aspects and not constantly beat ourselves up about what those problems were? You know, I think that it was handled really well in this episode, albeit very abruptly, because for me, hmm. sometimes Deep Space Nine has like a difficult time balancing the message within science fiction trimmings by either being Mm -hmm. too obvious or not obvious enough. And that's where some of my difficulty has been trying to find morals and meanings and messages in this episode. But I think in this case, when Cisco tells Cassidy that Las Vegas 1962 is a real issue for him, Mm -hmm. it's a very necessary overt way of saying, hey, look, right? I know this is all fun and games for some people, but here's the reality. I wish that I could access a memory being, you know, a person of color, being able to go back to 1962, be able to go back and Mm -hmm. enjoy myself the way that all of these other people of a certain color, of a certain look, of a certain race are enjoying themselves. But I can't. I can't inhabit the role-playing aspect of that because there's no point of reference for me to do that. Yeah. So, and I think that's like, sometimes you have to be like the honest brutal reality check 
in an episode from time to time. In this case, it's Cisco. From the very beginning, you know, when he hears all of his coworkers, his friends, having a great laugh or conversation about how great Vix is, he's like, hey, look, um, I don't have a point of reference here, but I know one thing. We're all working together to stop this war, so why don't you get back to it? Right. Instead of mm-hmm. goofing off. Same thing with with Cassidy, you know, at that dinner scene, you know, they were all having a good time. And all of a sudden, nope, no, I don't care about Vic. Don't care about 1962. Don't care about that era in history until he's really confronted with it and has to explain away why it bothers him so much. And in that case or in that example, it bothers us. It forces us to really kind of like stop, take a pause and say, oh, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But but see, but he still goes along with it and they all still go along Mm -hmm. with it. And and that's the place where I find myself asking, like, you could take any number of historic examples and um, and you could take those historic examples and the way we sort of package them for pop culture. You know, uh, in in the 1950s, when a place like Disneyland opened, okay, one of the the predominant genre of entertainment was the Western. And that's why you have a frontier land there is because you're you're showing people, look, you're walking into the movies and TV shows that you enjoy, which is the Western, which is typically fights between cowboys and Indians. Mm -hmm or more appropriately, Native Americans. And now, in the last 65 years, we, we've started to rewrite that pop culture version of that to go, uh, okay, some horrible things happen here. We have to acknowledge the idea of a genocide, and we have to acknowledge the idea that this isn't just pop culture entertainment. You know, so, but the Western still exists, not nearly to the extent of popularity and, and to a, a different kind of nuanced form now uh, compared to the way it did 60 years ago. Um, but we still allow ourselves to kind of walk into this fantasy version of that, like at a place like Disneyland, where you go, okay, well, now the Native Americans have their area. Again, this is all, you know, you're talking animatronics and you're, you're, you're talking this very pristine, very whitewashed version of it. They, they get to exist there and there are animals and then there are uh, shows at the saloon and that's about it. We kind of wash our hands uh, of the rest of it. And I'm not entirely trying to talk myself out of the idea that we can enjoy those things. But my question is, you know, how much of that do we also need to remind ourselves there is a reality there that is not being expressed? Anytime you package anything for the popular culture, for entertainment, you are definitely going to be leaving out some uncomfortable truths. Sure. And I think that's I think that there's a really good balance that was struck with Avery saying, hey, look. This is my issue with it. Or I should say Captain Cisco. This is my issue with it. Mm. But then Cassidy is mm. saying, are you, going to, are you going to focus on the oppression that happened or are you going to focus on look at where we are now because of that, because of our struggle? And I really love that conversation between the two of them because this is what Cassidy is, is so great at doing for, for Benjamin, making him see the other side of the equation, not always focusing on the negative, but look at, at, looking at, okay, we struggled then, like in Far Beyond the Stars their characters and yeah. they were fighting for that struggle but look at where we are now like 
yes, both of them can coexist. Yes, we have acknowledged the fact that it was terrible in 1962 for people of color, for black people, for not for them not being able to enjoy, you know, the 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 events that were happening, say, in Las Vegas as white people were, um, you know, uh, with with without reservation, I should say. Or without fear or without uh, having the doors slammed in their faces, you know, having to drink from, you know, colored fountains only. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, I think Cisco also realizes that, you know what, this isn't about me. You know, this is about my team that have all banded together in mass to help something or someone that they feel is worthy of their attention. So why isn't it worthy of mine? Right. I lead mm-hmm. this team. And if they can understand that, they can put – like even Bashir, do you really think in Indian descent – we're talking about you know Middle Eastern descendant, Indian descent would have been welcome in 1962's Las Vegas? I don't think so. You know, they yeah. were a person of yeah, – no, he not. was a person of color as well. The, the sexual subjectivity or objectivity of both Kira and Dax, of course, that mm-hmm. was on display as well. But I think mm-hmm. that they all relegated themselves to get past that. Because they knew, one, it was a fantasy, and two, because Vic needed their help. The friendship that they were on, well, was on display for Vic uh, superseded the reality of the fantasy. I, I agree with you, but I mean, there, there's a point where Cisco is enjoying this. So at some point, he gets past mm-hmm. the idea of, of his discomfort, which he is totally entitled sure. to. Ben, ben Cisco lived as Benny Russell. He knows on this acute level what it felt like to be a black man living in that era mm-hmm. in the United States, you know? So he better than anybody in this situation is entitled to that understanding. But at a certain point, he gets past that and goes like, this is deeply uncomfortable. This was a horrible point in our history for people like me. But not only am I going there to help my friends, he also enjoys it. And and that's where, like I said, I don't think there is an answer here that I can settle on, but it speaks to this thing that we have that we constantly pull back and forth, which is there are deeply troubling aspects to everything that our culture generates, and yet we decide that some things are okay with looking past and others that we can't. And every it's more frequently than every generation it seems like to sort of every few years or so we decide to swing that pendulum one way or the other and focus in one place or another uh cassidy says something very interesting she says uh when she's trying to justify going to this hollow suite it shows us the way things could have been the way they should have been and i'm wondering so but but does it though does it actually do that? You still have mobsters terrorizing people, beating people up, yeah. killing each other. So, you know, I, you know. I, again, I'll, I'll take it back to a Disneyland example. Like, you have all the noise around Pirates of the Caribbean. Every few years, the ride gets sort of updated, changed, morphed a little bit. Years and years and years ago, the men chasing women became women chasing men out of their homes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the bride auction became a pirate woman auctioning off goods, right, you know. Right. So, but but is that really, are, are we really doing that? Say, well, this is the way it could have been. This is the way it should have been. Are we really doing that? I mean, I, I, I think that's, are we, I think that's broad-based you know, optimism we, that for the sake of, of yeah, narrative brevity. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fair.
Let's hope that what happens in Holler Sweet Vegas stays in Holler Sweet Vegas. So we are John. So we are uh, we're here at the end of Bada Bing, uh, Bada Bang. Let me put down my sandwich here for a second and uh, let's have a conversation about it. Uh, let's talk about. I'm sorry, folks. I know I do this thing, and um, I can't help myself just because of the title alone it, it just kind of encourages me. Right? I know I'm insufferable. But uh, let's talk about the end of the show, John. Let's talk about if the episode holds up as we are wont to do first at the end of our show and then see if uh, we can mine any morals and meanings and messages out of Bada Bing, Bada Bang. So let's start with you. How did you, how did you come away with this episode? What did, it, what did it have for you? I, you know, Norman, you know me well enough, and I feel like a lot of our listeners know me well enough that um, I, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. I could just live in this Hall Suite fantasy. That this is a style and a place and a mood that really speaks to me. Um, so I, I'm predisposed to love this episode. And I do feel like I should just, this is one that I should just love top to bottom with no questions asked at all. And I mostly do. I really do. But there are just some odd things to consider. And, and that's why this conversation that we had in the last segment is the part that really interests me in this episode. Um, now, first of all, <laughs> we're taking another huge diversion from what DS9 is really about. <laughs> you know, that this is a lot of time that we think should be wrapping up about the war, and we know that we're getting there, but there have been a lot of non sequitur episodes that have come along. But to be fair, John, you also said that this was aired out of order. True, true. But, but you have another mm -hmm. standalone. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll feel differently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. And secondly, this is it's just a rehash of a heist movie, which is all well and good, but it just has to be your thing if, if you're going to like this, you know. And, and we've seen many times before where Star Trek uses its universe to tell a different kind of story, tell a romantic story, tell a comedy, tell a war story, tell something political or social, and this time tell something fun that is literally ripped right out of 1960, which is um, – uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven. And in terms of Star Trek, this is yet another holodeck runs amok story. And some of those are good, and some others are not. And this one is in the pretty good category, I'd have to say, because it is so stylized, but at the same time, it's a lot to buy. You know, the, the problem that was built into the game that would kill their friend, kill their holographic friend... I mean, it's really not a problem to anybody else except for the Hollow characters like Vic. Uh, so we really need to buy the crew's affinity for him. And I think we do. I think we do in this episode. Like I said at the beginning, especially Nog, if it hadn't – if nobody else had bought it, we buy Nog's connection to this. And the other interesting point here is Cisco's outburst. And this is just such an interesting moment because it is simultaneously out of place in the episode, but also 100% necessary. So those two things butt up against each other when that moment happens. And I don't want to sit here and think up a better way to do it, but I will just say that it feels strange when I watch it because, again, maybe I'm not following the internal reconciliation to actually go there, participate, and enjoy it. If you have a black man going into a white Vegas nightclub in 1962, it's going to be a point 
of attention. So you better address it. Was addressing it the way they chose the most effective, the best way to do it? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it is, uh, again, it's a sort of a weird point you get to in the episode. Avery sells it, no question about it. But I think that will always be one of these places in DS9 and particularly describing and discussing this episode where you just have to go, well, did they really settle that or did they just think to themselves, we have to address it somehow. Let's just get it out there. But look, that said, um, it's just such a treat. You know, sometimes when DS9 – goes off and does something unrelated to DS9's regular mission. Uh, it feels very out of place, and you just want him to get back to it. This is one of those diversions that I feel like, well, that's just fun. So I can't help but love it. Uh, how about you? Well, before I jump in uh, to my thoughts, I have a question for you, and I have a question yeah. for everyone out there. What if they just didn't put that part of Cisco in the story? Would that have mattered? I think it would, Yeah. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think I think we need him there, and I think that is the elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. You know, okay. and, and and maybe look, it would need to be addressed anyway. But because of what he went through in Far Beyond the Stars, we have to because he's felt it, he's True. lived it. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so you have to have something there. Uh, but I think. What is interesting that's come out of that is, again, this thing that I keep trying to wrap my head around, which is how much do we forgive? How do we frame those conversations about things that are problematic? Are we still enjoyed to allow them and reframe them to suit ourselves? Because otherwise we just go mad trying to pick apart what's wrong with every single thing we look at. Right. You know. No, that's very yeah. true. Very true. Uh, I have a question for you specifically. Oh, okay, do it. Because do this it. is where I was talking about I have maybe a surprise for you in trivia. Okay. So guess what came out on January 10th, 1999, a month and a half before Bada Bing Bada Bang was released on February 22nd, 1999. A month and a half. Interesting. What was that? The Sopranos. <laughs> See, that's perfect. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. The Sopranos. Yeah. Everyone knows The Sopranos, the legendary HBO series that pretty much changed the face of television consumption forever. Binge watching didn't exist until The Sopranos came out. And quite honestly, kind of like the, the Italian American mafia story wasn't really at the forefront of, of weekly television, aside from the occasional, did you watch The Godfather mm-hmm. or did you watch Goodfellas or did you watch Casino? But not until that time. So I'm just kind of throwing it out there, wondering, because it was so big and because it was so popular, even at the very beginning, were the eyes of all of the creatives in Hollywood out there looking at what they're generating in that space and saying, hmm, maybe we can capitalize a little bit on this to get some of that market share? I don't know. You know, that, that's interesting. I doubt this episode was written with that in mind. But I can tell you that the promotion, that, that's got to be why Sweeps Week was so important to them in True. February. Yeah, just get mm-hmm. this out there. It makes absolute sense. But I guess, though, aside from that, my bigger question, aside from like uh, the great points that you brought up you know, in, in your observations here, my big question is, knowing the writers, in this case Hans, uh, Hans and Ira, mm-hmm. knowing how much runway is left before the end, because they know – 
what their endpoint is going to be. They know where their final episode is going to be or when. Why did they choose to write and produce this episode specifically to maybe emulate The Sopranos or maybe emulate what was coming out there in Hollywood, knowing that they only have now 10 episodes left of Deep Space Nine? And when you really think about it, excluding commercial breaks, less than 10 hours <laughs> of content left, 10 hours. So with all the padding that we've that we've been exposed to in, say, the last four or five episodes, okay, the race to the end, these last 10 episodes, will they feel too forced? Will they feel too fast? Will the pacing be off? Because we're all keeping score here, and... There's a lot left to wrap up in this series. We still have to reconcile the Dominion War, the direction of where that is going, the Great Link, the Founders, all of these relationships, and all of that's going to have to get done in less than 10 hours. So, well, See, I'm, I'm going to push back here a little bit, and, and, and okay. here's why. Because I feel like an episode like Prodigal Daughter feels to me uh, or or field of fire feels like padding feels like okay we know we're going to wrap things up in 10ish episodes we we know what that arc is going to be we know what our uh you, you know what our our final coda to the series will be so we need some things to pad it out i feel like this episode and maybe it's playing the home game maybe it's knowing what ira's interests are uh, this one feels to me like one of those stories that they feel like we just we got to get this one out. We've got to tell this story because partly it is it's a little self-indulgent. This is an era that Ira loves. It's a style that he loves. But it also serves to actually tell a story with the whole cast, not you, Worf. With the whole cast <laughs> getting together and doing something as a team and doing it for fun. It sort of mm -hmm. it, it it just sort of uh, lets the tension drop a little bit. So I would say that to me, this is a more important way to break up the season than something like Prodigal Daughter or Field of Fire, where it's just mm -hmm. like, well, we got to fill a week. We don't know what to do. Uh, do something with Esri. She's new. You know? I mean, they may be setting up mm -hmm. like you know, like uh, getting all of the cast. Not you, Worf. <laughs> Getting all of the cast and the principal characters all together for something before this whole snowball starts rolling downhill so fast that it maybe become too dark, you know, too soon. And maybe you needed something to just start everything off. Just remember, yeah. you know, uh, making the, the audience remember that, remember, these people are our characters. These people are our friends. These people are the characters that we care about because things are going to go badly, maybe you know, very soon. I get that. You know, it's just, I want to see how they're all going to wrap it up because on paper, right. You yeah. know, if you add up just all the minutes that are left, not a lot of minutes left. Yep. yep. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So what's the message, John? <laughs> <laughs> what are the message, morals and meanings well, or things? Well, that let's nature see here. here. Okay. Um, you know, if, if I do want to have a little fun with it, because uh, I, I don't feel like this is overall a big morals, meanings, messages episode, but that's okay. Um, you could also come away saying that uh, criminals are dumb bullies. Um, and, and I know I'm making a joke of that, but... I, I like this depiction of the way they are, and I like seeing the good guys win. As much as I love a good mob movie, 
Um, I mean, Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Some of those run the risk of tilting into the dangerous territory of aggrandizing people who are not deserving of that. Their depiction here was pretty much what we should see. You know, our our heroes are the good guys. The mob guys need to fall in this. I mean, that uh, honestly, that scene with Cheech and the Philly cheesesteak, rightfully so, stuff like that makes my blood boil. So, you know, to to see them get their comeuppance, uh, that was very satisfying. There is the possibility of a parallel here with an episode like TOS's Shore Leave, where the need for play keeps growing ever more sophisticated. Uh, Though, you know, again, we've done it with other episodes, too. The holodeck exists for that very reason. And I think that's fine. You know, this episode doesn't really have to exist for a reason other than they wanted to tell a cool, hollow, sweet story in a different way. And they did. I don't think the racial issues here really get a fair shake. So I can't truly include it as part of the analysis to say, no, this is what the episode is about. But I do think it's a great question posed to the audience. Cisco does embrace something here. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. There is a real beauty to fantasy, to embrace it, to enjoy it, to take it for what it is. Even if it isn't historically true, it can be emotionally true. And a bit of distraction, a bit of glamour can be good for the soul. What I love about episodes like this, and, and uh, you, know, you, you mentioned it just earlier, that I love it because it's just pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, every once in a while, you know, we can turn off like the, that scanning mode in our brain and just let the episode kind of wash over us in the fun that it was intended to be. Uh, if we do come away with any morals or meanings or messages in an episode like this, um, maybe it's in that kind of I'm going to splash it with a bucket of cold water way that Cisco talks about how much he hated, you know, 1962 Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And sure, that's a lesson that can be learned here. And, and John, you've eloquently stated those points. But I'll double down here, though, like on what Cassidy said, because I think it was the line of the episode. I mean, aside from Bajor being a part of New Jersey, which just still kills me to this, <laughs> yeah, to this day. Right. So she said when, when she was walking away from Cisco, because Cisco is just stewing in anger and rightfully so, she said, going to Vix isn't going to make us forget who we are or where we came from. What it does, it reminds us that we're no longer bound by any limitations except the ones we impose on ourselves. So that's, to me, a very traditional Star Trek moral or meaning or message. And I think it just came about organically with her character, and it served as a way to show a different side of the equation where, of course, Cisco's right about his experiences. Cisco's right about how those experiences from far beyond the stars have, have uh, informed him of the, the intolerance and the, the brutal racism that happened in that period of history and still today. Okay, let's not forget that. Let's not, you know, just gloss over that still today. But again, Cassidy is looking at that more optimistic side of the future of if we don't learn from what we're doing right now, then we're not going to be able to free ourselves to be able to do better by ourselves in the future. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, yes, maybe glossed over a little bit too quickly in, in this, for the sake of, you know, expediting the rest of the story, because it was a very, very specific, very strong moral question posed in the very fantasized version of a mob heist, you know, escapade. 
that's where kind of like the balance of this episode is really off, even though it is fun to watch. Mm -hmm. But in the end, though, when they did the great kind of montage grand walk down through the promenade in all of their Vegas 1962 glory, what I came with uh, away with is that friends do for each other as they believe they need to do. Nog, Kira, Odo, Miles, Julian, Cassidy, Esri. Even if he were there, Jake probably would have. Mm -hmm. I would even believe that maybe if uh, encouraged enough, Worf would have, mm. right? But You're very optimistic. <laughs> well, just think yeah. about like how he used Vix as a whipping post yeah. when he was you know, uh, working through his grief for Jadzia. Yeah, he owes Vic. Yeah. Oh, he owes Vic a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, okay. So right. again, that's where I would – maybe Worf is like, I don't want to see Vic because I owe him a lot yeah. of money. <laughs> All right. You are, right. You are not off the hook here, yeah. Worf. Yeah, for trashing his bar yeah. uh, on, on occasion. How dare you call him just a hologram? Yeah. But because all of them have intersected with Vic at one point in time or another, whether they consciously know it or not, or especially with, because, like, say, Nog obviously consciously knows it and espouses it, there's no real greater honor to bestow upon a friend than by unconditionally offering them help, especially when they may be too proud or too ashamed to ask for it. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, enter Arma Enum Silent Legis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. This may be my last opportunity to comment on Chief O'Brien's pants. He probably wishes he was wearing them for the entire episode. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.